Hello, this is Gerard Robinson. Welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. And I can tell you in the last 48 hours, the learning curve of the American people and the understanding of electoral, the Electoral College, which we had a discussion about earlier, a lot's changed. Wouldn't you say that? <laughs> well, I would say, first of all, our last show, Gerard, um, provoked some really interesting dinner table conversation in my family, not only among my children, one of whom is old enough to, to sort of understand the electrical college, at least electrical. I did it again. See, electrical <laughs> college. Um, at least as much as, as your average American. So I don't, I don't know what that says. But um, I thought that the last show was so interesting, given what this nation has been experiencing in the past three days. And yeah, to your point, um, my husband and I had a very um, <clears throat> lively exchange about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about, about what, um, what voting should look like in this country. And of course, he comes from an interesting perspective because although he um, is a U.S. citizen, he didn't grow up here. Uh, so he finds the Electoral College to be uh, quite confounding. Uh, but I think even those of us who did grow up here find the Electoral College to be confounding at times. Where's where's your head at as you watch these maps shift and change and everything is so, oh my goodness, close, at least on the day that we're recording this, maybe not on the day of the release. From a civics standpoint, I'm excited to see so many people turn out to vote. Um, that's Amen. a good thing. I mean, in certain cities like Milwaukee, you know, over 70 percent, uh, Georgia, another story, but a good turnout. So that's great. Although we're all focused on the national uh, uh, part of in terms of the White House, which we should be a number of uh, school reform candidates uh, at the state level, uh, one position. Yeah. So it was good to see that. And then third, it was interesting to see how many African-American men and women uh, cross party lines uh, to vote Republican, um, mm-hmm. you know, not the higher rate of 18 percent that we saw with Richard Nixon in 72, but higher than even what Bill Clinton had uh, and during one of his elections. So it's just an interesting point. And so for those reasons, it's good fodder for conversation. And I bet you uh, part of the vote as it relates to the African-Americans has something to do with criminal justice reform and education yes. and who they thought was going to do something about it in the White House. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, something similar can be said for the um, catch all thing, the the Latino vote, as everybody Mm -hmm. says, these are not these are not monolithic groups of people. (laughs) It's a surprise, surprise media. Um, People are individuals and have their own opinions. And um, this was also another hot topic of conversation in my house because I am married to somebody Mm -hmm. who considers himself a Latino. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it's it's looking across this country at the diversity of people that we, you know, we assume when we talk about white voters, we, we separate them into different categories, They're white suburban voters and white female voters and college educated voters, et cetera, et cetera. But when we talk about the African-American vote and the Latino vote, we're just, oh, that's all one thing. So if this election has taught us anything, let us teach us, let it teach us that we need to stop with these um, broad generalizations. And and I don't know, everybody's saying, oh, the polls, they didn't work. The polls didn't work. Uh, I'm, I'm still not sure where I come down. So. <laughs> yeah, I stopped poll dancing two elections ago. 
did not. You just did that. That was no. better than, better than I, electrical college, Gerard. That yeah, was. no, I stopped the pole dancing uh, because I start uh, going to social media and just listening to conversations from regular people. And uh, I learned a lot more. I learned a lot more from them doing that than the poll. So I can tell you, I did not spend more than five minutes reading polls for the last six months. You know, good for you. Again, you're you're a smart man. I I have to say, I you know, I am not I'm not as much for social media as um as I probably should be if I want to <laughs> do the work that I do. But um, boy, have I been enjoying Nevada memes about about how Nevada is counting votes and the length of time oh. it's, that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty enjoyable and really no shade Nevada like do it right get it right you know every vote counts let's make it happen but there's some really good ones out there it's just Las Vegasy and such so so thank you to the Nevada meme world it's uh it's brought some light into my life in recent days that and uh people singing Ray Charles's Ray Charles's uh, Georgia on my mind oh yep yeah yeah, we've had a lot of Ray Charles, um, the Lincoln Project, using Ray Charles' uh, version of mm. "God Bless America." There's some beautiful, mm-hmm. there's some beautiful music these days. So listen, it's you know what it tells us too: the end of 2020 is in sight. <laughs> the oh. longest, shortest year of all of our lives. Yes, and even though the election, we may not know officially uh, who won for another week or two. I look forward to exhaling. And seeing the next phase of American politics. There we go. And, and, and to keep doing the work that we do, regardless of whatever outcome, because that's what we do. Well, speaking of the work and what we do, uh, one of the articles that I read I found really interesting is written by Thomas Sowell. And if you are listening or anyone close to you is listening, we are definitely trying to get you on the show. Just a quick plug. Uh, <laughs> so Jamie has uh, worked hard to make that happen. It's called Black Education Matters, and he's written a book recently about charter schools and their enemies. But this is really more of his take on the bureaucracy and the billions of dollars that we spend on schools and just a dismal impact it's had on student achievement amongst African-Americans across the board. We know recently from uh, our NAEP scores, there's not a lot of confetti throwing. Uh, for huh. the African-American students across the board. Yeah. Yes, if we de- uh, disaggregate the data, we see some wins, particularly amongst some low-income students. We know that those in charter schools have had some great wins. We know those in traditional Title I schools have had some wins. But if we simply believe that we can have a nation within a nation of people without having an achievement gap that we can call a moral uh, stain on our country, I think it's a problem. So he just talks about bureaucracy. He talks about money and he talks about some cities. If you've read his work, he's pretty critical of people on the left and I get it. But I think he's a sober writer. As we talk about politics, this is a good time to talk about black education matters. It sure is. And, you know, I think, um, too, we I'm heartened to hear more and more about, you know, black education matters. And I think framing it, just being very blunt about what we're talking about instead of, you know, dancing around the issue and using all these excuses about, oh, how, how do we describe, like we were just talking at the outset, like describing certain groups of people, what we're saying here and what he's saying is that, you know, there are reforms. We know that there are there are reforms that help those who haven't had access to the schools that they need. 
And it's, you know, and we need to start to prioritize giving everybody access to the schools that they need. It's going to be important, as you said at the outset, I'm heartened that we're at the at the state level, we're seeing more and more reform-oriented advocates um, coming to the fore. I'm also really hopeful, Gerard, that, um, that, you know, I think we're getting to a point where we're seeing some of the good that could come out of um, this pandemic that we've been living through. And I think that, you know, watching voter turnout, thinking about how this might change the way we vote <laughs> or how the way mm-hmm. many of us have been voting by mail and voting early for years. But but I think now people uh, real uh, more and more people realize it's a thing. But I also think the same thing will eventually happen with education. And I'm not necessarily in the camp that this is going to totally blow up the district system. I, I, I really Correct. don't think it will. But I think that it's going to show more parents you know, to your point about bureaucracy, what does and does not work in a district system and help us to think more about grassroots, parent-driven reforms to change all schools, whether it's, you know, charterizing uh, district schools, whether it's finally, you know, scaling charter schools in the places where they're not and, and providing kids with more options, or whether it's direct payments to families to even if they're staying in the public schools to access things like supplemental services Correct. That, kids, that kids need and deserve. So holding up, we've been feeling depressed for a couple months, but now we're all hopeful, Gerard, you know, um, let's, let's see where this goes. So, but yes, and, and soul is always a, a great read. Uh, and, and yeah. And as you said, at times, maybe a little bit polarizing people, some people don't like it. Uh, some people don't like to hear, uh, the truth, <laughs> but I always, I always find him a really provocative, really interesting reader and writer. And I hope that we can have him on. And coming up, Gerard, we also have another provocative, very interesting thinker and writer. We are going to be speaking with Jason Riley. Uh, many of our listeners will know his work. He's a columnist for the wall street journal, also a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, We have got a lot to talk about with our friend Jason. So we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. We're very lucky to have with us today Jason Riley, Senior Fellow at Manhattan Institute, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and a commentator for Fox News. He's a recipient of the 2018 Bradley Prize. After joining the journal in 1994, he was named a senior editorial writer in 2000 and a member of the editorial board in 2005. Riley writes opinion pieces on politics, economics, education, immigration, and race. He also also speaks frequently on ABC, NBC, CNN, PBS, and NPR. Riley is the author of Let Them In, The Case for Open Borders, which argues for a more free market-oriented U.S. immigration policy. And please stop helping us <laughs> how liberals make it harder for blacks to succeed. I'm sorry. I just love that title, which discusses the track record of government ev- efforts to help the black underclass. His most recent book, False Black Power, from 2017, is an assessment of why black political success has not translated into more economic success. He's also worked for USA Today and the Buffalo News. Riley holds a BA in English from SUNY Buffalo. Great school. I love it. Jason Riley, welcome to the show. We are experiencing a really interesting uh, election. Some would say contentious, some would say divisive. And you've seen this before. What are your thoughts and insights about the current election uh, and its political implications for D.C., the states, and the country for the next two years? 
Oh, wow. That's a, that's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, we still don't know the result. Uh, it looks to me as if uh, Joe Biden is going to be uh, the next president. Um, I, I thought Donald Trump was a very mixed bag. Um, I, I had uh, problems with his uh, you know, trade. Um, I liked his uh, tax cuts. I liked his uh, advocacy for school choice. Um, so he was a very, very mixed bag for me. Um, I thought pre-COVID that he would fail to a second term, frankly. Um, and I think it's really been his response to uh, the coronavirus epidemic that, that may have cost him, ultimately cost him uh, the election. Um, uh, that said, e even if we are uh, uh, done with Donald Trump, I don't think we are done with Trumpism um, by mm. any stretch of the imagination. Um, he turned out his voters. In fact, I believe uh, he's got north of five million more voters this time than he did in 2016. Um, so I, I, these folks aren't going anywhere. Um, uh, it's a constituency that is too large. Uh, to ignore. So I think whoever, uh, you know, runs for president in, in, in uh, uh, the next go round in 2024, uh, you're going to see some elements of, of, of Trumpism in, in their, in their, in their platform and the way they present themselves. And, you know, the out party often does this. They, they say uh, the problem wasn't our message. It was the messenger. So we'll just get um, uh, someone who can do a better job of, of delivering, delivering the message. And I think that's, that's likely what what you're going to see going forward. Um, one thing that's interesting, I, I think that the, the Democrats are very smart in, in nominating Joe Biden. Um, and, and Biden said, I, you know, I'll go out there and win back those upper Midwestern states that Hillary Clinton uh, lost. Uh, that's why you need me. And it looks like he has uh, won back um, those states, your Michigans, your Wisconsin's, possibly your Pennsylvania. But what's interesting, according to the exit polls that I've seen so far, is that he did not win back those states by um, winning back those voters who voted twice for Obama and then moved over to Trump. He won back those states, those states in particular, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, it looks like, by turning out voters that stayed home for Hillary. And I think that's an important distinction because, again, it speaks to um, the fact that Trump was able to turn out his voters. And while those voters might not be enough to elect him or reelect him this time, there is still a very, very large number of them. And the Republican Party will not be able to ignore those voters. So I think Trump's brand of he has made his mark on the Republican Party and I think it's going to be there for, for, for the foreseeable future. And if we look at the number of state legislatures that people were saying were going to flip, uh, that didn't happen. The record number of Republican women going to D.C. now and the number of uh, even some African-Americans who won local seats, sheriffs and other things, is part of the, the Trumpism you mentioned. So assuming yeah. that no, – go right ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I, the way I read that, uh, you know, the, 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 the country also it looks like uh, the, the Republicans are going to increase their numbers in Congress and the House. Um, and it looks like they're going to hold on to the Senate. 
And what, what that says to me is that the country was saying, um, we may be done again with Trump, but um, we're not done with, with his brand of republicanism. We want a check on a Democratic president. And we saw that playing out in Congress and the Senate, as well as you just mentioned, in the state houses, uh, gubernatorial races, and the state legislatures. And I think that is, um, that's important because it means it, 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 would be, it is going to be a check on, 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 uh, on, on Joe Biden. It says that you know, uh, we don't want a Green New Deal. We don't want a, a, a packed Supreme Court. We, we, we don't want um, uh, you know, statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. Those things are off the table if Mitch McConnell is the majority leader in the Senate. And, and the fact that um, uh, you had, you had some, some split ticket voting this time that you didn't have in 2016, mm-hmm. I think speaks to the fact that Joe, Joe Biden doesn't have much of a mandate here other than you know, to tackle coronavirus and not be Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So let's just assume that it's Biden, that he's going to be inaugurated in January. Let's talk about education, and you know this uh, subject better than most of us. Do you see him sticking to what he said he was going to do and really work closely with the teachers' unions, put a, you know, a stop on charters, or do you think he's going to go back to the centrist approach to policymaking with education when Obama was president? Uh, that's a very good question. I, obviously, I hope for the latter. Um, but I, I'm by no means certain that he will go that route. Um, it, it, you know, on the one hand, Biden can 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 tell the progressives to go pound sand. He can say, "Listen, uh, you guys all ran to my left, and you all lost, and I mm. won the election. So clearly, it is uh, you know the policies that I've stood for." that um, that people expect me to carry out. On the other hand, um, Biden moved quite a bit to the left during the primaries to fend off the uh, more progressive candidates, the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens. And one area where he did that was certainly on, on school choice and his view of charter schools. And um, I, I, I hope he can walk walk that back. But, you know, one thing I worry about is that because he won't be able to push um, a more progressive agenda on some of these other issues, like like perhaps uh, uh, energy uh, and, and, and health care and, and some of the other things that he might want to do. Maybe one area where he tries to throw the progressives a bone might be on education and aligning himself with, with the teachers' unions, um, uh, which would be a shame because I think um, we've seen some tremendous progress with school choice, particularly with, with charter schools and what they've been able to do, particularly in our inner cities with our most vulnerable uh, uh, com- communities and populations, uh, th- these things work. They, they, they work better than the traditional public schools that these kids would otherwise be attending. We know that. We have the studies to show it. And I, I, I can only hope that, that, um, that the old Joe Biden um, stands up for, for these kids in those communities. With the murder of George Floyd this past spring, we saw, you know, violence in the streets uh, in ways we haven't for decades. Uh, You've written a number of books on race in America. Could you share with our listeners your views about the state of race relations and how political, media, civic, religious leaders, what they could do to begin to address our often deep racial divide in this country? 
Well, I guess I can start with the election. Um, and it's interesting to note that that Donald Trump increased his numbers, um, his performance among uh, both blacks and Hispanics and Asians. And, uh, you know, which is which is interesting for someone who has been labeled a white supremacist and racist from day one. Um, uh, so I, I would put some of those increases in, in perspective, for, for instance, um, uh, I think his, his numbers among blacks went from a, around 8% last time to maybe 11 or 12% this time. But people should understand that um, since basically Gerald Ford in the 1970s, the average Republican uh, presidential nominee has garnered 11 or 12% of the black vote. So, so Trump is just back to where <laughs> most Republican <laughs> candidates have been over the past 40 years. Now, it's true that he outperformed both uh, John McCain in, in 2008 and, and Mitt Romney in 2012 among uh, black voters. But guess who those two had to run against? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a reason. <laughs> sure. That, that so, but in other words, it looked. It's it's better to put it this way. Trump underperformed among blacks uh, for every Republican nominee uh, since Gerald Ford, with the exception of Mitt Romney and John McCain, because of course they were running against the first. Black presence. So I, I just there's a lot of uh, effort on the right to oversell this. I think, and, uh, uh, and I I just think that context is is necessary. Now on the Hispanic vote, I think it's more interesting because um, uh, he also moved up among Hispanic voters. And what's interesting is he he moved up among Hispanics who who don't just live in Florida. I mean, we already knew Cubans have been reliable Republican voters, and he did well with them, obviously in Florida. He also did well though with Venezuelans. Uh, other South Americans, um, I think labeling uh, Biden a socialist really helped for some of these people who know socialism and lived under socialist regimes. But outside of Florida, what Trump did among Hispanic voters is impressive. If you look at the Texas districts right along the Rio Grande, heavily Hispanic. So there you're talking about Mexicans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans. He improved his numbers there. And I think that's that's quite impressive. To me, that's that's a little more impressive than what he did uh, among blacks. And I think that is going to uh, have the, the, the left scratching their heads, Democrats scratching their heads. They they think demography is destiny here. They think um, people who look a certain way are supposed to vote a certain way. And I think this um, uh, Trump's performance this time, even if he loses the presidency, is going to make them rethink that because they seriously underperformed among among Hispanics. Um, in terms of the, the protests, uh, w one of my biggest problems with what's been playing out in the recent months is, uh, is, is, is the narrative that is driving these protests and, and, and the fact that we have put policing uh, at the center of the conversation. And I find that so far wide of the mark, it's, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, obviously we can improve policing. We can, we can make it easier to identify bad cops, get them off the force. We can get police departments to share more information so that, you know, a bad cop can't move on to another department in another jurisdiction or state or so forth. We can definitely improve policing. But this has turned into scapegoating police for social inequality in America. It's gone far beyond uh, the scope of what I think is necessary uh, to address 
the policing concerns anyone anyone might have. And the, the problem with this is that if we want to use the phrase Black Lives Matter and, and, and take that, the, the agenda of these activists seriously, if we want to actually do something about uh, this high Black homicide rate, uh, all of this violence in these communities, the focus, I don't think, should be on, on policing. I mean, last year in Chicago, there were 492 homicides. Three of them involved police. Three out of 492. So the idea that uh, police should be at the center of this conversation or how these neighborhoods are policed, I think is just uh, uh, a, ridiculous, a ridiculous notion. What's happened here is, I think due to social media largely and everyone having these camera phones, uh, when you get a George Floyd or when you get a Michael Brown or Freddie Gray, um, uh, it gets more play in the media. And people see something getting more play in the media, and they assume it's happening more often. Those two things aren't the same. The data we have on police behavior, in fact, gives lie to that. I mean, I'm in the New York City area, and New York is one of the police departments that has, in fact, kept detailed data on the behavior of their cops going back all the way to the early 1970s. So, for example, in 1971, New York City cops shot 300 people. By 1991, that was down to about 100 people. By 2019, that was down to 34 people. So you're talking about a roughly 90% reduction in police shootings in the nation's largest city with the nation's largest police force. Yet you have these activists out there pushing a narrative in the complete opposite direction. The, the data just does not back this up, that there's some epidemics of cops targeting young black men. It is not happening. There is no data to support this narrative. And yet we've had protests all summer based on that presumption that George Floyd's happen every day, that I walk out of my house every day fearful of being shot by a cop. I mean, these young black men in Chicago may indeed leave their house every day worrying about getting shot, but not by a police officer. That's ridiculous. But we're not talking about the real problem in these communities, which, of course, are these high uh, rates of crime, of violent crime in these black communities. And that's what we need to be talking about. There, there is a legitimate reason why these communities draw police attention. This is where the 9-11 calls originate. And so the idea that you can break down police shootings by race without breaking down criminal behavior by race uh, strikes me as a, a dishonest conversation from the start. And we've been very reluctant, though, to talk about racial disparities and crime rates and the degree that that plays, that to the extent that that plays into uh, when these incidents go sideways, how often they go sideways, and so forth. And uh, so uh, that's what's disappointed me about these protests. I think they are premised on, 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 on bad data. Uh, a, a false narrative. And, and, the, and the real danger here is that to the extent that they lead to uh, scapegoating of cops, you're going to get more tentative policing, less proactive policing. You're going to get cops a little more reluctant to get out of their cars, um, a little more reluctant to engage with civilians. And that just gives the criminals the run of the place. 
And we've seen this in city after city where the police departments have been targeted. They get all this attention, they draw back, crime spikes, and you end up with more uh, dead black bodies. And so my fear is that this, not just that the narrative is, is, is wrong, it's dangerously incorrect and can lead to even um, uh, more death and mayhem in these communities that need good policing the most. You bring up a lot of really good points. One of them is the issue of policing. And so again, assuming that uh, Biden's gonna become president, uh, a number of African-Americans or civil rights groups early on questioned his role in the 1994 uh, crime bill, the impact it had on families. Some said the same thing about uh, Senator Harris, what took place in California, where now they're gonna be in the White House. Do you think maybe their narrative will change? And do you see any role that either education or some type of program can play in trying to bridge that gap? Well, to start with the second point, yes, obviously education plays a huge role here. We all know the correlation between simply you know, graduating from high school and staying out of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a very strong correlation. Our jails and prisons are not full of high school graduates. We know that. So uh, education plays, plays a, huge, a huge role here. Um, the Biden-Harris, I mean, on, on paper, if you had looked at the background of these individuals on paper, you know, Harris is a prosecutor, um, Biden is this sort of centrist Democrat. Uh, a, a lot of people on the center right uh, would have been fine with their background when it came to criminal justice. Um, again, because the, the party, the Democratic Party, has lurched so far to the left, uh, they found themselves out there uh, with, uh, you know, defund the police slogans and, 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 and all that sort of, of nonsense. And um, I, I, you know, I, I hope, again, uh, as, as with the school choice stuff, that they, that they walk that back. Both of them know better. I think um, there's been a lot of rewriting, revisionist history when it comes to the crime bill of, of 1994. People forget that a majority of the Congressional Black Caucus supported this, supported this disparity in sentencing between uh, crack offenses and powder cocaine offenses. Charlie Rangel led that fight. Major Owens led that fight because of what the crack epidemic was doing to their constituents back home. Uh, this is a complete rewriting of history to say that the the, the crime bill was some sort of racist bill. Uh, again, black politicians in Congress led the fight on, on, on this. Uh, and, and I'm glad that they did, frankly. I mean, I mentioned New York City earlier. You know, you go back to the early 1990s, you're looking at, you know, 2,000, 2,100, 2,200 homicides a year in the early 90s in New York. 80% of them black and brown people. If we had continued those rates for the next 30 years, do you know how many more dead black people there would be versus what there are today? And to the extent that the crime bill uh, helped reduce that problem, I think it was an excellent piece of legislation. Uh, so I, I hope they don't, they don't walk it back. Kamala Harris knows better. There are some excellent uh, YouTube videos of her speaking over the years about these issues. Uh, and, 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 and I, I, I'd like to see the old 
the old Kamala Harris. I, I don't know that we will. Again, I think they're going to be under a lot of pressure uh, from the progressives uh, to walk a lot of that back and to make sure that they don't move in that direction. But I, I think that's one of the reasons uh, Joe Biden is not going to have a Democratic Senate to work with, at least not initially. People were listening to this defund the police stuff, and I think that's part of the reason they wanted to, they, they wanted to get rid of Trump, yes, but they wanted to check on, on a Democratic White House. And, and I think this stuff you were hearing from the protesters, from the activists, uh, is, is, that's part of the reason people wanted that balance. For over 40 years, uh, one person, among many, but one really intellectual voice who's talked about race, culture, economics, education, is Dr. Thomas Sowell. And you're working on a uh, biography of his life. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about him and what attracted you to decide to dedicate a, a book to his life. Well, um, Thomas Sowell is, a, is an economist. Uh, he's currently affiliated with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's been out there since 1980 uh, after spending a decade uh, teaching at various schools around the country, Cornell, Amherst, Brandeis, UCLA. And um, he's someone I discovered when I was in college in the early 1990s, uh, along with people like Shelby Steele and Walter Williams and Glenn Lowry. And these guys really had a, um, a huge impact on my own intellectual development. And uh, after I became a journalist, joined the Wall Street Journal, um, continued reading Soul, uh, got a chance to meet him. Um, uh, I discovered to my amazement that there was, he had no biographer. Uh, there was no biography of him. He'd written a memoir. Uh, he'd written a book of correspondence, uh, letters that he had both sent and received over the, over the decades, but he had no official biographer. And I said, uh, this is an important guy. He's been saying um, uh, these, these things for a long time. He's been right for a long time. And I thought that uh, you know, a younger generation, a new generation of readers um, uh, could benefit from, from the things he's been saying, so much of which is, is still relevant, still being debated, social justice issues, uh, affirmative action issues, uh, economic issues in the black community, um, uh, you know, reparations are still being uh, talked about. Tom Sowell was talking about this stuff 30, 40, 50 years ago to some extent, and I think he was right then and he's right now. And, 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 and so I, I finally got him, uh, talked him into uh, letting me write this book, and, and uh, it'll be out in uh, in May of next year, and uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, people reading it and telling me what they think. Well, I look forward to reading the book, and congratulations on uh, writing about someone who for the next uh, 100 years uh, will know some new things about because of your work. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the Learning Curve. I learned a lot and look forward to future conversations. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Kara, my tweet of the week is from our friend Lindsay Burke at the Heritage Foundation. It's Hi, from November 2nd, Protecting Learning Pods, a guide from Jonathan Butcher, uh, another colleague of ours who is at Ed Choice. And he really put together a great report, and it's called Protecting Learning Pods, a 50-state guide to regulations threatening the latest education innovation. And so I went through it and identified, you know, states 
And there's even a map. Uh, blue is for no regulatory alert, alert. And then there's gold for regulatory alert. And my state of Virginia, there is one and two. But um, really good article to read, particularly for people who just want to know more about how states uh, are thinking about learning pods. It even makes a distinction between micro schools. But it's a great read. I want to thank Lindsay for tweeting, but more importantly, thank Jonathan for continuing his work. Because if you look at his work over time, he's really written some you know, good pieces on regulations and how they work and don't work. So that's my. Tweet. I couldn't agree more, Jared. Thanks for that tweet. It's a it's a great piece. I had the um, I was able to speak with Jonathan Busher just this week, uh, right after the release of the paper, part of a small group. And um, you know what? What was really interesting as he highlighted how we went through the work and what he was finding is that this, this definition of what is a learning pod. And I think often we use the term and we, it's so new, we still don't know what we're talking about. Are we talking about mm-hmm. parents creating their own pods? Are we talking about them using district services, but doing it in a pod form? Are we talking about parents leaving the district and forming a pod? Are they homeschoolers? Are they not? And what he really brings to light here is that states don't know yet. And a lot of the, the, the more regulation oriented states, I'm, I happen to be standing in one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they really are kind of throwing spaghetti against a wall and they don't know yet how they're going to, there's some sense that in some places we want to stop these things from happening. (laughs) We just don't know how to do it. And then in other places where I think it is the right, right approach, it's sort of a wait and see and almost sort of protect, which is kind of where I think we should be right now. Like let's protect and let's see where this can take us. Um, because, you know, this could be, like I said, I don't think we're going to blow up the system, but boy, this could be a great thing for a lot of kids. And I think we, uh, we need to, um, not let silly regulations get in the way. So I would agree. It's a great piece. Highly recommend it to our listeners. All right, Gerard. So next week we will have with us professor Wayne Franklin. He's a professor of English at the university of Connecticut and the definitive biographer of the American literary figure, James Fenimore Cooper. Ah, Very cool. So looking forward to that. Just another author. We're expanding our reading list every day here on the learning curve. Thank you very much, Jamie Gass. But we, uh, until then, Gerard, until next time we speak, uh, I'm looking forward. I hope you get some time to relax and not look at anything election oriented because we'll we'll be in this for a while. Thank you, Georgia. Mm-hmm. We sure will. And let me say congratulations to all the candidates who ran for office at federal, state, and local level. Congratulations to those who won. Uh, you know, condolences, but still congratulations for having make, made the attempt. I have friends who are elected officials. I have friends who won and lost. It's not easy, but it's still good to see people willing to. Uh, take that leap into the world of, uh, of public life. So get some rest, uh, those who won, because you'll need it come January. Awesome. Here, here. Okay. Till then. Bye-bye, Gerard. Bye-bye. 